before Tiananmen Massacre, Jiang Zemin as newly appointed General Secretary, from the time of late May, began reading and approving official documents. He was a key figure in the tragedy and the one who benefited the most from it. After the massacre, the days grew long and challenging for Jiang. Much as blood that stained Jiang's hand. Every year around the date of June 4th, people all over the world express condolences with numerous photos and video footages, which had been Jiang's never-ending nightmare. He'd never forget Zhao Ziyang's criticism of him before the massacre. Zhao's strong opposition to the massacre, and resignation in anger served as the most pointed reminder of Jiang's shameful road to power. Grieved by resentment, the way Jiang wanted Zhao's living quarter in Beijing monitored and controlled, was so harsh and strict, even security staff were left baffled and reluctant to follow. After the massacre, almost every major media operation the world over carried a picture of a young man, who blocked with his own body, unarmed, the pass of the moving group of tanks. The man's name was Wang Weilin. International media praised with sincere respect, the courage with which Wang peacefully protested. Some called him the hero of the century. Wang's very existence itself became the reminder of the massacre. Jiang was terribly upset over the matter, and issued a secret order to find the young man. Wang was captured and executed in secret at Jiang's orders. In the year 2000, Jiang was interviewed by Mike Wallace, the veteran CBS 60 Minutes reporter in the United States. Wallace took out Wang Weilin's picture, and asked Jiang, do you admire this young man's courage? Jiang offered a surprising reply, he absolutely was not arrested. I don't know his whereabouts. To the experienced reporter, it was telling that Jiang had answered an unasked question. Another hero of Tiananmen protest was Xu Qin Shen, the army commander of Battalion No. 38. Xu Qin Shen was respected by Chinese everywhere for his refusal to carry out orders to fire at the students. Yet, Jiang, as chairman of the military commission, ordered a secret trial of Xu, and imprisoned him for five years. At a press conference soon after the massacre, a French reporter asked Jiang about a female graduate student, who was arrested for participating in the demonstrations, and later was gang-raped in a Sichuan province prison. Jiang's reply couldn't have been alarming, he declared, she deserves it. In his youth, Jiang had seen firsthand, his biological father, Jiang Shijun, employed propaganda to disguise the Nanjing massacre. Indeed, with time, the collective memory of the massacre faded. This time around, Jiang had at his disposal, far more sophisticated technology from which to draw. He ordered the production of a television program that would play out so-called acts of savagery by the student demonstrators, military vehicles were purposely incinerated to create shocking footage for the program. The idea was to convince China that the army had no alternative but to fire at the students. Before long, sure enough, many, who had not themselves been present at the massacre, started to believe the lies. Many came to think there had indeed been a rebellious uprising in Beijing. Along with this, Jiang Zemin gave orders, that persons from all walks of life, who had participated in the demonstrations, and supported the students, or who had resisted the suppression, or abetted the civilians, all be exposed, and punished, barring none. And so it's that discussion and memory of the massacre have been, through a formula of land intimidation, basically snuffed out inside China. No matter what's the explanation, it's wrong for the tanks to chase people and crush them. That's why the party needed to clear up what it called the rumor. A doctoral student at the Ministry of Propaganda was dragged to the martial law military unit where he was interrogated and tortured. Did you see it yourself? They asked. He replied, yes, I did. 
I'm a member of the party and have to be honest with the party. I'll admit to what I actually saw. I did see it. He was electrocuted with a thousand volt electrical baton and passed out. This was repeated several times. At last, after several rounds, the student said, No. I did not see it. He had been a promising party successor. However, this time, he witnessed the party's true color firsthand. The party claims that they speak the truth and that honesty is important. It turned out that the party totally prohibits people from speaking the truth. His physical health was badly damaged from the torture, and he became mentally unstable. The story of Fang Zheng is every bit as telling as it's chilling. Fang was a graduate student from Beijing University of Physical Education, whose legs were run over by a tank and severed. He had been a record holder in handicapped games. However, when his story in the massacre became known, he was barred from the games. Sixteen years after the massacre during an interview with Epic Times, Fang shared the following about the incidents. I didn't have time to duck the tank, and was knocked to the ground. The tank then ran over my legs. Tank treads have many chains and wheel gears turning in them, and I felt my pants getting pulled into the tread gears by the chains. There was a tremendous force. I was slightly conscious and could tell that my body was being dragged on the ground. Later, the doctor at the hospital told me that my head, back, and shoulders had been bruised and lacerated. After the chain on the tread shredded my pants, and macerated my legs, I fell to the ground, and rolled to the side of the street near the sidewalk fence. My right leg was severed at the upper thigh. The left leg, at the knee. Important to Jang is that memory of the massacre be weakened, blurred, and distorted over time such that the event will not be readdressed, or the government's power will not be challenged. In the process of hiding truth, shifting blame, and purging those who spoke of the truth, Jiang Zemin came to have decisive control over the government propaganda machinery, and use of violence. Later, Jiang would employ similar tactics to persecute the practitioners of Falun Gong. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, Western countries led by the U.S. carried out military action to conquer Iraq's invasion. Even though Iraq's dictator Saddam Hussein was a good friend of the Chinese Communist Party, China was isolated from the international community at the time and didn't want to offend Western countries by supporting Saddam Hussein. However, during the war, China's press, tightly controlled by the CCP, repeatedly stating that Saddam had a good chance to win and the guerrilla warfare would be prolonged and that the U.S. troops would be trapped in Iraq, similar to what happened during the Vietnam War. At that time, the Western countries had imposed economic sanctions over the Tiananmen massacre, and China had little international support. Facing a challenge as major as this, Jiang Zemin panicked, did not know what to do. Deng Xiaoping said, shut up and stay hands off. Thanks to Deng's order, Jiang didn't need to make a decision. China subsequently abstained from the UN vote on the Gulf War. Operation Desert Storm triumphed in merely 42 days against Iraq. Jiang Zemin was terrified. In the meantime, with the drastic changes in Eastern Europe, the Cold War was approaching an end. The wave of democracy had been moving eastwards, 
and would soon reach China with only the Soviet Union in between. In the face of heavy pressure to democratize, the Red Empire led by Gorbachev looked prone to collapse at any moment. If the United States continued its Cold War strategy, or carry out military attacks with its much-admired political and economic system and advanced weaponry, China's one-party autocracy would be toppled. The victory of U.S. forces with minimum casualties taught Deng Xiaoping a lot, and shocked the highest echelon of the CCP, who realized the urgency for China to arm its military with high-tech weapons. Zhang who had no military experience was at a loss. As the chairman of the military commission, he had to do something, and he turned to his old boss the Soviet Union for help. He announced a plan to purchase a high-performance, state-of-the-art weaponry system from the Soviets. Although China spent a huge sum of money to acquire them, all of the acquisitions proved to be obsolete weapons discharged by the Soviet Union, or weapons that performed poorly that the Soviet was clearing out. The warplanes received from the Soviet failed frequently. The Soviet aircraft carrier Kiev was purchased for 7 billion yuan. However, it was found out later, that it was just an empty shell for the Soviets had stripped it off all of the high-tech equipments. After the Tiananmen massacre, China had been luring Soviet professionals by means of hard currency. Approximately 1500 Soviet scientists and technicians started working as consultants for China's military in the 1990s. When Jiang Zemin visited Moscow, to beef up the relationship with the Soviet Union, and solidify his political power, he tried to please the Soviets at all costs. As a result, a Chinese territory, 40 times the size of Taiwan was secretly ceded to the Soviets. Yeltsin, an important figure for the reformists, requested to meet Jiang, but was turned down. Instead, Jiang met with Soviet Union Vice President, Yanayev, who was against programs of reforms, and Jiang told Yanayev that he hoped the Soviet Union would go back in the direction of socialism. A few months later at the end of 1991, the Soviet Union, despite all appearances being strong, collapsed in a matter of days. This brought about dramatic changes in the state of the world. The disintegration of the Soviet Union dealt a strong blow to the CCP, and shook its confidence. With the Soviet Union disintegrated, the CCP began wondering about its own future. The successful collapse of communist powers made Jiang Zemin extremely anxious and uneasy. He became so pessimistic about the CCP's future, that he sent a message to his son, Jiang Mianhang in the United States, advising him, no hurry, take your time to finish school, then get a job there, and stay longer. Jiang Zemin reached the acme of power, through the bloody crackdown on student democracy activists. He felt uneasy about his personal safety. The Central Security Guard was responsible for all the central government officials, including the chairman and vice chairman of the People's Congress, and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. Jiang Zemin wished to have someone absolutely trustworthy as the director of the Central Security Bureau. The current director Yang Dejong, hardly fitted the bill, though his qualifications were unmatched by others. His credentials came from service to Zhou Enlai, Hu Yaobang, and Zhao Ziyang. Zhang Zemin thus lacked an excuse to remove Yang Dejong.
what he could and did do, however, was positioning as many trusted persons as possible around Yang Dejong. He first arranged for Yu Si Gui, whom he liked and trusted, to be the head of his security retinue. He'd later promoted Yu Si Gui to deputy director of the Central Security Bureau making him a deputy of Yang Dejong. After Jiang Zemin's position was secured, in order to have Yu Si Gui become the director of the Central Security Bureau, he ignored opposition from military officials and broke the CCP protocol by buying out Yang Dejong. First, to promote him to the rank of first-class general, the highest general rankings, and then advise him to retire. The post of the Central Security was then filled by Yu Si Gui. The Central Security Bureau was thus in effect reworked by Jiang Zemin into something of a private army. For this reason, Zhang Qinhong paid special attention to the guard. In the name of training, he ordered everyone in the guard participate in the political study sessions, the effect of which was to brainwash the guards into loyalty not only to the CCP but also, more importantly, to Jiang Zemin. Yu Si Gui and Zhang Qinghong deployed security guards to monitor high-ranking officials. Jiang Zemin closely monitored all officials of high rank, well, ironically, being afraid that himself was monitored by others. He doesn't trust anyone. After retiring from the position of General Secretary of the CCP, Jiang Zemin continued to hold the post of Chairman of the Central Military Commission. And it's through this position, that he concurrently held the post of First Political Commissar of the Central Security Bureau. When Jiang Zemin was appointed Chairman of Central Military Commission with no credentials, no experience, and no merit, he wouldn't dare to slightly offend the military. Besides allocating a huge amount of funding to the military, he utilized the propaganda tricks learned from his father, managed to have several movies made, to praise and flatter the military. In the meantime, to brainwash the public who were utterly detesting the army after the Tiananmen massacre. Jiang Zemin's position in the party was not stable at that time. He urgently needed to raise the trusted followers within the military. He inspected the Jinan military region in 1992. The regional commander Zhang Wanian shouted aloud the slogan, firmly support the party central committee and central military commission with Jiang Zemin at the center. This made Jiang Zemin ecstatic. He immediately promoted Zhang Wanian to the position of General Chief of Staff of the Central Military Commission. Then in 1993, he promoted Zhang Wanian to the rank of full general. Zhang Wanian didn't disappoint Jiang, he once gathered his entire personnel in the Chief of Staff office and ordered them to sing, in front of Jiang, the song The Gun Will Forever Obey the Party's Command. Jiang Zemin couldn't have been happier. Zhang Wanian's flattery proved quite effective, and people soon began to follow in his footsteps benefits in kind. Guo Boxiang was an army commander, and major general in the 47th army. In the early 1990s, Jiang Zemin went to inspect Shanxi province. When he napped for over two hours at noon, Guo Boxiang stood guard for him outside the door. Jiang Zemin took an instant liking to Guo Boxiang, transferred him to Beijing military region, and made him a vice commander. After that, he was promoted three times, at one point, became the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, and being awarded the rank of full general. Yu Yongbo was another such figure, flattering Jiang Zemin without let up. In 1992, he was named director of the General Political Department of China's military, and later in 1993, given the rank of general. At the beginning of 2001, at a banquet Jiang Zemin hosted meant to entertain the entire top brass military, Yu Yongbo shouted out, Long live Chairman Jiang. The move made him something of a laughing stock, though it was not seen as such by Jiang Zemin. 
appointing general became Jiang Zemin's way to gain allegiance. 79 generals were appointed by Jiang Zemin between 1993 and 2004. As for major generals and lieutenant generals, hundreds were made in Jiang's era, almost as if the move was part of a casual game. Those promoted were full of mean spirit. They have little respect for each other, they slander each other, create obstacles for each other, refuse to cooperate, are jealous of each other and undermine each other. Many of those conferred so frequently with ranking and titles, didn't regard the designation as the honor it was supposed to be. At the award ceremonies, Jiang Zemin himself casually gave out the certificates of the appointments with merely one hand. And they took the honor lightly, conducted themselves in a manner anything but serious. All of these very much under the veteran generals who were promoted based on the abilities, who enjoyed immense prestige, whose commands were met with uniform obedience. Jiang Zemin's strategy of building an army was to promoting politics, that is, the army must obey the CCP's commands, obey his commands. As for how to command the military, he wouldn't measure up to an amateur. One might ask, what sort of might could a military achieve with people of such caliber? A military of this sort won't manage to win battles no matter how modernized their weapons may be. The military's entrepreneur activities started in the mid of 1980s. The initial objective was to offset the military's expenditures. Senior officials of the CCP were optimistic about the endeavor's potential to sustain the military within the military. After Jiang Zemin became chairman of the military commission, he took the advantage of his authority and loopholes in the military enterprises to gain full control of the military. Jiang gave many undue benefits to the army, allowing the military to wantonly indulge in trading and fostering corruptions within its ranks. As a result, the military madly involved in smuggling, and the problem spiraled out of control. The military was the largest player amongst all the contingents involved in smuggling. Taxes and duties were invaded by hundreds of billions yuan, and none of the money was used to offset the military's expenditures. Most of it, instead, went into the officer's pocketbook. Never before was the military so corrupted. Incredibly, all of these matters were covered up upon being brought to Jiang's attention. The problems China faced in the forms of pirates, gangs and corrupted local officials, now paled in comparison to the activities of the military. According to March 28, 2001, BBC News account, the National Security Advisor of the Philippine, Royal Ogles said that the Chinese military personnel, were running operations supplying $1.2 billion worth methamphetamine to the Philippine every year. The government of the Philippines repeatedly sent representatives to Beijing to discuss and protest the ongoing drug smuggling operation by China's military, led by Jiang Zemin. On July 6, 1998, the North Sea Fleet of the PLA Navy escorted four oil tankers smuggling oil from Northern Europe and encountered smuggling patrol boat in the Yellow Sea. The Navy fired at the patrol boat, which resulted in 87 death and injuries. Ironically, among the 13 death, was one surnamed Deng. He was the fifth-generation descendant of Deng Shirchan, a national hero in the Qing Dynasty Navy, who fought the Japanese and died in the same area of the sea. 
the military used its meteorological observatory for its private purposes, forged the premier signature, and stamped documents with the seal of the military commission's vice chairman to fraudulently withdraw some 2 billion yuan. In just the first six months of 1998, the military's guns and artilleries had killed 450 customs staff, police, and other law enforcement personnel, while injuring another 2,200. Smuggling by the military was a shortcut for the military officials to get rich. Another shortcut was profiteering from the military enterprises. 80% of the assets and profits generated by the military economic entities had been embezzled, and divided among senior and middle-level officials. Every year senior and middle-level officials had spent 50% of the entire expenses of the military on food, drinks, overseas tours, luxury homes, and luxury cars. The total amount squandered by the military officials in 1998 was shockingly two times the military budget of 84 billion yuan. Under the leadership of the CMC chairman Jiang Zemin, generals of all levels busied themselves, jockeying for promotions, and laundering money. However, money and rank didn't buy their heart, and didn't make them feel secure either. In 1998 alone, 24 major generals or senior officials fled overseas, bringing with them enormous amounts of embezzled public funds. With time, Jiang grew afraid, however, that the military business operation would make it more independent, something detrimental to Jiang's exertion of control over it. Besides, the military business operations were disrupting the normal economic order of things. Finally at the insisting of Zhu Rongji, in July 1998, Jiang Zemin decided to severe the source of its income, so that the military had no choice but to depend on him for allocating funds, and would have to, in turn, obey his orders. Just to play it safe, however, Jiang Zemin resorted to his usual tactics. He asked Hu Jintao, who was fifth in the run in the standing committee of the Politburo, to handle the thorny issue. This would allow Jiang to hide out behind the scenes, in case anything went wrong, who would be the scapegoat. Along with that, Jiang could potentially strip Hu's successor title. After the military, paramilitary police, and Public Security Bureau were in principle disengaged from business operation, the properties held by these economic entities were divided up within the military. The greed of the military and paramilitary police had, by then, already been roused, so they frequently resorted to violence to resolve disputes over the sharing of the liquidated properties. Frequently fights erupted. Those involved employed guns, artilleries, and even armored vehicles, as they fight each other. An official was punished for embezzling money that his supervisor had wished to snare for himself. The official was bitter over the punishment he received. On Sunday April 5, 1998, when no one was in the camp, he set the storage room on fire in retaliation, and resulting in explosion that occurred at 656 Air Base Radar Station in Shanding City, Hubei Province, where more than 120 people were killed or injured. The economic loss were immeasurable. On August 3, 1996, in the China Air Force hangars, two officers quarreled over the uneven division of the illegally obtained funds. The heated exchange ended up in the use of firearms, which set off a chain reaction of explosions and fires. 81 airplanes had been destroyed in the explosions, and 90 servicemen were killed or injured. The directed economic loss was put at 1.1 billion yuan. The incident cost China 160th of its entire 5,000 aircraft fleet. In eastern China, the Anhui Provincial Military Region, the Hefei City Garrison Command, and the Anhui Province Paramilitary Police Unit, were under the domain of the East China Military Region. The three parties formed a partnership for business purposes. When they could not reach an agreement to divide the funds, 
the three parties scuffled at the assembly hall of the Anhui military region, resulting in the death or injury of over 30 military officers. And so it came to be that, under the leadership and direction of CMC Chairman Jiang Zemin, officers of the People's Military died not on the battlefield defending their country, but instead in the throes of the internal warfare, over illegally acquired wealth. Incidents such as those described here, had occurred in all of China's provinces, and regions. It's impossible to narrate them all. Jiang Zemin's so-called military ideology means absolute obedience to him. As long as the military is politically reliable everything else would be easy for Jiang. Although the military expenditures had been on the rise, its performance had been on the decline, and failed to meet the standards of the CMC. Violation of law and disciplines remained high. There continues to be a stream of incidences such as desertions and prohibited use of weapons. But the military, instead, spent its resources towards the vigorous promotion of a large-scale weight loss campaign, for military officers and cadres. The participants were financially rewarded. Those who managed to lose 5 kilograms would be rewarded 1 to 2,000 yuan. 7.5 kilograms of weight reduction met with rewards of 2 to 5,000 yuan. And 10 kilograms reduction, 5 to 10,000 yuan. Under Jiang's leadership, the military involved itself in the sex industry to an extent never seen before. The General Staff Department, General Logistics Department, and General Political Department of the PLA found themselves wrapped up in the pleasure of sex and sensual indulgence. For example, as of 1995, 15 recreation venues were being run by the agencies under the control of 3rd Division of General Staff Department, employing 476 escort hostesses, all of which competed to provide high-rank officials with erotic pleasures. These pleasure-preferring outlets were divided into three classes, top-grade, high-grade, and second-high-grade. Top-grade and high-grade establishments were equipped with clinics with highly qualified military doctors, emergency medical units, and ambulances. Top-grade class even operated Z9 helicopters for emergencies. The development of these clubs, guest houses, hotels, and holiday resorts reached its peak in 1997. In the top-grade clubs, guest houses, and holiday resorts customers were provided 24-7 year-round service. The high-grade and second high-grade outlets were entertaining at full capacity every day of the year. The interior design and decoration of these venues were luxurious and exquisite. The service attendants, assistant managers, nursing attendants were all unmarried young women. Those selected had to go through political screening, as it was called, and had to go through training in culture, literary art, etiquette, and public relations. A variety of services were provided to patrons depending on their ranks. Those holding honorary club cards, which means lifetime membership, needed only to sign their names, expenses incurred on food, drinks, and other pleasures were on the house. All along there had been strong objections to the corruptive, lustful establishments from the CCP members and military staff. The degenerated practices were seriously affecting military morale. Furthermore, young women were committing suicide after being raped at nightclubs, guest houses, and holiday resorts. 
In the year 2000, the central CCP was compelled to ban these military clubs, following the resolution to rectify the characters of the party, a measure adopted at the 6th CCP Plenary Conference. Most of these military recreational services were developed in the 90s, after Jiang Zemin became the chairman of the CMC. Many senior generals, such as Hong Shui-ji, Xiao Kei, Liao Hancheng, Yang Chengwu, and Yang Beibing had expressed a strong disapproval of Jiang's corruptive management of the military. Jiang for his part regarded them as thorns on his side, yet he feared they would join forces to oppose him. Not daring to use hard-line tactics, he used a soft approach to handle them. Jiang planned to give every general a promotion before asking them to retire and surrender their military power. Jiang would then bring in his clique and take over things. To consolidate his position in the military, Jiang would batch by batch promote those officials who pledged loyalty to him. By this means, he instituted a major blood change in the military. In July of 2001, Jiang ordered to issue a special subsidy to 332 widows of deceased senior CCP statesmen and generals. The subsidies were intended to silence any objections the widows may voice. Over 50 widows requested that the money be donated to impoverished college students in northwestern China, who couldn't afford tuitions. The remaining 270 widows accepted the special subsidies. After that, Jiang seemed more at peace. By the eve of the Chinese New Year of 2002, the Central Organizational Ministry, headed by Zheng Qinghong, had to raise 20 million yuan from confidential sources. The money was distributed under the pretense that Jiang in his capacity as chairman, cared and concerned for veteran cadres. It was extended selectively to those who had much power, who could potentially affect voting in the forthcoming the 16th CCP National Congress, and who had frequently objected to, and hindered Jiang and Zheng. Sun Zi's Art of War says, that if the commander-in-chief of an army is incompetent, yet eager to show off, greedy for power, greedy for wealth, fearful, unable to keep his word, cruel, or selfish, then his army will meet with failure. Jiang Zemin the chairman of China's military commission, upon a close look, is found to have all of these traits. As such, it should come as little surprise, the armed forces under Jiang were rife with corruption and weakness. Could such a military guard its homeland and protect its nation from foreign aggression? How unfortunate this is, indeed, for China as a nation. On March 23, 1996, Taiwan held its first democratic election. Along with Li Denghui, presidential candidates including non-partisan figures Chen Luiyan and Lin Yanggang, as well as Democratic Progressive Party candidate Peng Mingmen. Jiang was worried over Taiwan holding an election. He was afraid of the reverberation of a democratic election in Taiwan, would stir a longing for democracy in mainland China. At the time, Hong Kong was about to return to China. The driving force behind the scene was Jiang's wish to achieve something involving relations between the mainland and Taiwan, and to be credited in China's history book. Jiang was mediocre and bumbling at best in the matter of foreign affairs and domestic governance. However, with the encouragement of some old generals, he decided to teach Li Denghui a lesson. 
The result of Jiang's ambitions almost started a war, and scared the wind out of himself. In 1995 and 96, the CCP proceeded to hold quite a few military exercises, missile firing drills, amphibians operations, and transferring troops from various regions, to the coastal area directly across from Taiwan. The U.S. government was alarmed, thought the situation was serious, and deployed two carrier fleets, independent and Nemet, to patrol the Taiwan Strait. Jiang was scared. He did not dare to ruin China's relationship with the U.S. Scarier yet to him, was the likelihood that if conflict broke out, the military would seize power, making him a mere figurehead as the chairman. He declared that the military exercises were enough. Taiwan heard the news, and reassured. The election carried on as usual. The year 2000 witnessed the second general election in Taiwan. The Democratic Progressive Party candidate Chen Shui-bian was leading in the polls. Jiang had been labeling the DPP as the radical Taiwan independent camp, and constantly attacked them in the media. Jiang was stupefied. He didn't know what he would respond if Chen were elected. War wasn't something Jiang wanted to launch. He trembled whenever he thought about it. On the other hand, if he chose not to go to war, what would he do about the nationalist fervor he had stirred up domestically? He was overcome with trepidation, every time he thought of the dilemma he had to confront. Jiang Zemin was proud of his showmanship, but this time, though, he pushed Zhu Rongji, whom he hated very much, to hold a press conference, to deliver a hardline ultimatum. Two birds with one stone, on one hand, Jiang Zemin shrank from the responsibility himself, on the other hand, he made his old enemy, Zhu Rongji embarrassed himself, and tarnished his image in front of the whole world. But Jiang tried to make a show of strength, CCTV broadcasted a series called Chinese Troops during that period, which was a thinly veiled threat. Troops were mobilized towards the regions neighboring the Taiwan Strait, implying that war was inevitable if Chen Shui-bian was elected. On February 1, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Taiwan Security Enhancement Act, expressing strong concern regarding the potential war across the Taiwan Strait, while the people of Taiwan stood up to the CCP's intimidation, and elected the opposition leader, Democratic Progressive Party Chair Chen Shui-bian, as their new president. Jiang Zemin, who reached the top thanks to the massacre, believed only in power, force, and intimidation. As a result, he suffered a major tumble. Not only was Jiang shaken by the election outcome, but also the whole top echelon of the CCP was caught off guard, and left stunned. On the evening of March 19, 2000, the news anchorman of China's official communist television news, read with sober intonation the statement, by the Communist Central Office of the Taiwan Affairs, he read, we hope the newly elected DPP authorities will not go too far. The vacuity of the statement indicated that the CCP was at loss over what to do. They blundered in the appraisal of the will of the Taiwanese people. Jiang came across as much more moderate, compared with the tone of pre-election propaganda. He acted as if nothing had happened, as if he had never issued a tough speech before the election. Jiang seemed to have forgotten, that it was he, who tricked Zhu Rongji into playing the part of the villain early on. It now looked like it was Zhu Rongji who had made a ruckus over nothing. Zhu Rongji regretted deeply for having been a pawn in Jiang's game. Several years later, Li Jiaping submitted a letter to Communist Central Leadership, representatives of the National People's Congress, and members of the National Political Consultative Conference. He revealed in the letter that Jiang had been two-faced in his tactics handling the Taiwan issue. Jiang pledged, on one hand, to attack Taiwan, hoping to gain the trust of generals and troops, thus maintain his authority over the military. But Jiang, on the other hand, 
promised the President of the United States that the PLA wouldn't attack Taiwan, as long as the U.S. supported him continuing to hold the position of the chairman of the CMC. Jiang barked plenty about taking military action against Taiwan, and even made gestures of an attack on several occasions. But all of it amounted to posturing ultimately. The reality was, Jiang was using Taiwan as a trump card. He would wave it whenever his power was threatened, pretending war was imminent, and giving the troops a sense of importance. When things had passed, he'd put the card away, and save it for the next crisis. Zhu Rongji's image suffered a big blow in the eyes of the international arena. What with him became a symbol for saber-rattling warmongers. He ended up the figure hurt the most by Jiang's shenanigans. Zhang Zemin is nicknamed the Clown. He took drama classes when he was young. His infamous habit of combing his hair in front of everybody was passed on from his showbiz teacher back then. Jiang's passion for showboating had often reached alarming highs. He might recite poems, sing songs, or showcase his English without consideration of the occasion. First, his hair combing. Zhang visited Spain in 1996, in front of King Carlos, he took out a comb and proceeded to groom himself. The next day, the largest newspaper in Spain, as well as many other newspapers, run a front-page photo, and a story about the incident, the caption of which was, King Carlos watching Jiang Zeman combing his hair. Soon after, newspapers around the world run the photo. Many Chinese who were living overseas felt a collective loss of face, upon catching the wind of the article. More than once had Jiang combed his hair in front of the television cameras. When in March of 1993, the National People's Congress was held in Beijing, Zhang, who sat at the center stage, took out his comb, and began combing his hair with such focus, that the outside world had receded from his mind. On October 24, 1995, Zhang was giving a speech at the United Nations, faced with cameramen and reporters from around the world, Zhang, once again, took out from his pocket his comb, and proceeded to groom himself. This had become the classics of laughingstock of the world press, at the expense of China's dignity. Jiang loved to sing in public. In 1996 Jiang visited the Philippines. On the trip, he voluntarily proposed to stop the disputing jurisdiction over the Nansha Islands, and to develop an economy shared with the Philippines. That same night, the president of the Philippines invited Jiang to a banquet. Jiang was still thinking of the charming senator, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo though, whom he just met. At the banquet, Jiang still very much lost in his daydream, to others' surprise, grabbed the microphone, and launched into a rendition of Elvis' Love Me Tender. On February 21, 2002, Jiang welcomed President George W. Bush from the United States at the Great Hall of the People. He sang O Sol Mew in front of more than 100 guests. President Bush clapped in response, and half-jokingly asked U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell to sing a serenade. Powell smiled and politely declined. During a visit to Iceland, while everyone present was busy eating at a banquet, Jang stood up unexpectedly, and broke into a song, leaving guests and host at loss for what to do. Jiang's wife Wang Yiping appeared very much embarrassed. 
The scene was afterward detailed completely with a large color photo by the largest Iceland daily newspaper. Jang loved to dance, too. At the dinner party at the Great Hall of the People, Jang grabbed U.S. First Lady Laura Bush for a dance. Then, not satisfied, Jang grabbed the U.S. National Security Advisor Rise and the wife of the U.S. Ambassador to China Sarah Rant for yet another dance. On October 24, 1999, Jang was visiting a museum in France. Out of sudden excitement, Jang grabbed the hand of First Lady Bernadette Chirac and started dancing the waltz as a surprised Jacques Chirac looked on. Just as the alarm began to set in for the president, Jang again grabbed Bernadette's hand and laughed loud ostentatiously. President Chirac was upset by the showing, thinking Jang was embarrassing himself. French people fumed over the incident, feeling it had been insulting. Jang Zeman was totally lacking diplomatic etiquette. On April 19, 2000, the president of Turkey was prepared to give Jang a national medal during his visit to Turkey. It's common courtesy that on such occasions the host country's president would himself place the medal on its recipient. To everyone's surprise, however, an eager Jang jumped to the fore and physically bestowed the medal upon himself, much to the shock of onlookers. When in 1999 Jang stopped by Great Britain, en route to France, he declared in English, the air here is very good. There is natural gas everywhere. Perhaps he meant to say that the air was fresh, which of course has nothing to do with natural gas. The following day, the quote was carried in the Chinese language newspaper, quickly making Jang the butt of jokes. Jokes about Jiang's sloppy English dated back to his days as mayor of Shanghai. On one occasion, as mayor, Jiang accompanied foreign visitors to a public park. Jiang wanted to show his guests that Shanghai had become open, and that young people dared to openly date in the park. He pointed at a young couple, and declared, making love, much to his guests' discomfort. Jiang Zeman likes showing off by reciting verses. At meeting with overseas Chinese he would quite often recite a few lines of poetry to show off his literary capability. Once a Chinese person asked Jiang whether he would retire. Jiang replied by reciting a verse from a Song Dynasty poem that goes, I'd rather return with the west wind. The answers, if it could be called that, were all shows and no substance. In the year 2000, Jiang met with overseas Chinese at a New York City hotel, when a Chinese man asked about plans to develop China's west region, Jiang responded by reciting two verses from a Tang Dynasty poem, which goes, Drink up one more cup please, as beyond the Yang Guan Garrison Gate friends would be none. While visiting the United States, Jang, on one occasion, recited a passage from Lincoln's speech to President Clinton for no apparent reason. When ahead of a nation visiting a foreign country, there are certain diplomatic protocols and etiquette. A lack of etiquette doesn't reflect merely on the individual involved, but also on his or her nation. As the head of the Chinese nation, Jiang's exaggerated acts and disregard of diplomatic protocols reflected poorly on not only himself, but also on the image of China and its people. is everything for Jiang Zeman. He has no regard for people's life and properties. 
he couldn't care less for the welfare of the Chinese people overseas. And he is always a coward when facing crisis and foreign powers. This is in stark contrast with his support for the Tiananmen massacre, his cruel persecution of Falun Gong practitioners, and his ruling of China with an iron wrist. A riot against ethnic Chinese broke out in Indonesia on May 13, 1998, and lasted for three days. The properties of Chinese Indonesians were widely looted and destroyed. Over 2,000 ethnic Chinese living in Indonesia were killed, and hundreds of women were gang-raped, some were even killed after being raped. The international community was shocked and angered by the barbaric attacks. The United States Congress and the United Nations Human Rights Commission both issued statements condemned the incident. Leaders of many countries and organizations in kind condemned the Indonesian government. Media reported extensively on the riot. Chinese living outside of China were irate and demanded that the Chinese government condemn the event as well. Surprisingly though Jiang stated that the violence was Indonesia's internal affair and that as such, China's media should not report on it. The Chinese government, he instructed, should not interfere. On the contrary, Jiang made sure that nothing would affect his ties with Indonesia's leader and a large sum of financial aids to Indonesia would carry on as usual. Again, he disregarded people's welfare and acted in a craven manner. Had Jiang made a public statement or given a warning on behalf of the Chinese government, the plight of Indonesia's Chinese wouldn't have been so heart-wrenching and unalterable. On May 8, 1999, during NATO's war with Yugoslavia, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was hit with three missiles resulting in the death of three reporters. The United States explained the bombing was a mistake. China refused to believe this account. After the bombing, China's military asked Jiang Zemin to put on his military uniform at once and make a statement as the chairman of the Central Military Commission on television. Others suggested Jiang wear a suit and lodge a protest as the nation's chairman and immediately summoned the U.S. ambassador to China. The country's top officials thus were quickly entangled in a quarrel. The ever-timid Jiang was flustered by this. He had no idea what he should say or to what extent he should protest. After discussing things with Zheng Qinghong, he decided to hand out the nutty problem to Hu Jintao. Zhang and Zheng hatched a rather nasty scheme, however, that would in effect kill two birds with one stone. If Zhu Rongji didn't come to the fore on this issue, China's angry mass would associate the bombing with Zhu Rongji's appeasement diplomacy and shift their anger to him. He could thus serve as a scapegoat. On the other hand, any Hu Jintao's mistake could be reason enough to stop him from succeeding Zhang as general secretary at the 16th National Congress. For the next two days, Jiang was nowhere to be seen. Jiang's inaction aroused great indignation in China, for he was the nation's chairman and the chair of the Central Military Commission. As of the third day, Jiang still hadn't shown himself. Slogans such as Jiang Zemin, a turtle hiding in his shell, our leaders must have all died could be heard in the People's University of China. The nation as a whole was indignant all over. As well known, for nearly a century Sino-Russian border dispute has been constant. Russia began its aggression and expansion during the Tsarist era. 
the former Soviet Union continued to annex and nibble away China's territory. No other country annexed as many Chinese lands as Russia. Throughout its invasions, Tsarist Russia took Chinese lands through inequitable treaties with China, including the Treaty of Agun and the Treaty of Beijing. Besides, Tsarist Russia and the Soviets also used force to annex area that was designated in treaties as Chinese territories. No leaders in China's modern history dared to act rashly and officially recognize the inequitable treaties signed in the past. After the October Revolution, Lenin once made a declaration to return the lands to China which Russia had occupied. Lenin died before he could fulfill his promises. After Stalin came to power, he denied the declaration to China existed. However, Jiang Zemin in the 1950s was sent to the Soviet to study, and recruited by the KGB. The KGB sent Lady Spike Leva to seduce Jiang Zemin, and blackmailed him with his traitor's background during the Japanese occupation, and forced him to become a Soviet spy. On December 9 and 10, 1999, China Jiang Zemin and Russia's President Boris Yeltsin signed in Beijing the Narrative Protocol on the Eastern and Western Sections of China-Russia Boundary. Over 1 million square kilometers of Chinese territories, the size of many times Taiwan was given away to Russia by Jiang Zemin. Jiang also agreed to give Russia the exit point of Tumen River, cutting off northeast China from the Sea of Japan. From the time that China introduced reforms, and started in the late 1970s to open up, Jilin province had thought to gain access to the sea at the Tumen River. Access would have a far-reaching effect on economic development in the province, and play a critical role in advancing its economy. To hasten gaining access to the sea, the provincial government of Jilin invested heavily for several years in improving the province's infrastructure, and conducted several negotiations with Russia. After more than three years of efforts by Jilin, the coastal frontier region of Russia announced its intention to cooperate with China and build a harbor. But just as its smooth negotiation was about to enter its critical decision-making phase, Jiang Zemin privately signed his treacherous agreement with Russia, the protocol on east section of boundary between China and Russia. The move left China's negotiators dumbfounded. With the Tumen River's entry point to the sea virtually sealed off, the strategic plan on which the people of Jilin had pinned so much hope amounted to but a pile of paper. The treaties Jiang signed with Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan the China-Tajikistan-Kyrgyzstan Agreement on Boundary Demarcation, and the China-Kyrgyzstan-Kazakhstan Agreement on Boundary Demarcation ceded all disputed lands. Jiang Zemin ordered the withdrawal of Chinese border troops, such that 500 kilometers from the borders left without any defenses. The area for Russia, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan which were left undefended, however, reached merely 100 kilometers from the border. Russia military commentators thought Jiang was a fool. During his visit to Philippines Jiang offered to give up the sovereignty claims over the Spratly Islands, and agreed to join the development of the islands. And after meeting the charming lady Senator Arroyo, Jiang sang Love Me Tender at the banquet. At the end of November 1996, Jiang visited India, and signed an agreement on confident building measures in the military field of control zone in Sino-India boundary area, setting a framework for border demarcation based on current control line, meaning that China now recognizes the McMahon line and had let go of 9,000 square kilometers of fertile land south of the Himalayas. Jiang approved Sino-Vietnam Land Border Treaty on December 30, 1999, which gave Vietnam Lao Shan of Yunnan Province, and Pha Ka Shan of Guangxi Province, lands that hundreds of Chinese soldiers had defended with their lives during the Sino-Vietnam Border War of 1979. Now the patriotic souls of dead soldiers were buried in Vietnam. The Senkaku Island, 
a part of Taiwan, including 740,000 square kilometers of exclusive economic zones where large oil deposits were found underneath the area. Jiang had never renounced using force against Taiwan, but when Japan occupied Senkaku Island, Jiang announced to seek a settlement through peaceful negotiations. Jiang didn't sign the treaties under any form of coercion or war. Given the positions Jiang held at the time of the leader of China's Communist Party, government and military, it can be said with unclad certainty that Jiang ceded China's territories of his own accord, to satisfy the Russians, and cover up his background as a traitor, working for the Japanese invaders, and as a spy working for the Soviets. The CCP feared the details of the treaties being leaked. The truth would be equally ruinous for the CCP regime. With the above said, there does remain one possible hope for recovering the territories ceded by Jiang Zemin. And that is to bring Jiang to a public trial. According to the United Nations Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaty, that treaties concluded with fraud, bribery and threat of force, are invalid. If Jiang were brought to trial for the Chinese nation for the land treaties he handled, the treaties he had signed will not count.